Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Inmates at El Paso County Jail, alongside Colorado's ACLU, have filed a federal class action lawsuit following last month's 900-person outbreak at the 1,200-person facility. Most El Paso inmates haven't yet been convicted of a crime, but cannot afford to post bond. The jail did not provide masks until early November, despite receiving $15 million in federal pandemic aid, which the sheriff used for facility upgrades. Inmates were punished for making their own masks from underwear and bedsheets. Staff failed to quarantine and care for sick inmates, but left them in their cells to let the virus run its course. Hundreds of people contracted COVID-19 in the jail and suffered unnecessarily because of the sheriff's deliberately indifferent failure to protect them from an obvious risk of infection and harm to their health, said Dan Williams, an attorney on the case. Meanwhile, those who have yet to contract the virus live in constant fear as they look around at sick bunkmates, coughing jail staff, and a general disregard for safety, the lawsuit states. Urgent is an understatement. John B. Wade is a Black Atlanta activist facing charges related to the George Floyd Rebellion in the summer of 2020. He was arrested on November 2nd in an interagency raid, along with two others, Vita Jones and Ellie Brett. They faced charges related to a string of arsons against government property and police cruisers. Wade has been repeatedly harassed by law enforcement since the beginning of the mass rebellion. He currently faces charges for his alleged participation in the vandalism and burning of the former Wendy's restaurant on University Avenue following the murder of Rayshard Brooks. Brooks was killed by Atlanta police officer Garrett Rolfe, who was indicted for murder following the burning of the Wendy's, outside of which Rayshard was murdered, and clashes between police and protesters. In a correspondence with the Atlanta Anti-Repression Committee, Wade objects to his bond conditions highlighting the discrepancy between his own case, in which he is not accused of harming any living people, and the legal treatment of Kyle Rittenhouse. Rittenhouse murdered Joseph Rosenbaum and Anthony Huber, two anti-racist protesters amid a revolt in Kenosha, Washington, following the non-fatal shooting of Jacob Blake by police in August 2020. At Wade's request, we share the following. To whom it may concern, on behalf of protesters and myself, I am not moved by the involvement of the courts to satisfy bond of Kyle Rittenhouse, a murderer. His negligent acts are not alleged, but of sound mind and caught on camera, which is viable proof of his careless acts. We demand justice and equality based on the preliminary facts of the courts and bond awarded to 17-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse. We ask that the courts consign to our request as equal to Kyle Rittenhouse that we two non-murderers be granted a bond as fair and just under the acts and liberties of the United States of America. John B. Wade. The Prison Policy Initiative has just released a statistical analysis 
showing that the persistent overuse of imprisonment directly leads to COVID-19 spread inside correctional facilities and outside in surrounding communities. In April, a team of epidemiologists predicted that America's current incarceration density would lead to hundreds of thousands of preventable cases. In June, a PPI and ACLU report showed that America has still failed to decarcerate adequately. The latest study confirms that incarceration encourages COVID spread, not only between prisoners, but among the people staffing and visiting these facilities and those who live nearby. At both the county and regional levels, large incarcerated populations were associated with three statistics, an earlier rise in cases in the spring, a spike in confirmed cases in the summer, and an addition of 560,000 national cases by the fall. The report demands that state and local leaders reduce prison density, calling for clemency, parole expansion, and other legal means of release. It has never been more obvious that the nation must move away from mass incarceration immediately. FAM, or the Free Alabama Movement, has called for a statewide 30-day work strike on all prison labor and a boycott of prison services companies that profit off the exploitation of incarcerated people's families through price gouging. An average full-time worker incarcerated in Alabama prisons may make $40 per month. Funds often circulate back into the Alabama Department of Corrections, the ADOC, price gouging commissary. Organizer Swift Justice reports that some people incarcerated on Alabama's death row and in solitary confinement will go on hunger strike in response to FAM's call. FAM demands that the ADOC immediately reduce its populations from around 15,300 to its intended capacity level, which the Department of Justice, the DOJ, estimates is 9,882, in order to prevent the spread of COVID-19. Other strike demands, such as the creation of an excessive force database of employees, an overturning of the statewide legal loophole that allows for slavery and the implementation of rehabilitative programs, seek to ameliorate long-standing grievances. This strike will allow a lawsuit that was filed by the DOJ against the state of Alabama and ADOC on December 10th, which alleged violations of the 8th and 14th Amendments by, quote, failing to prevent prisoner-on-prisoner -prisoner violence and sexual abuse, by failing to protect prisoners from the use of excessive force by security staff, and by failing to provide safe conditions of confinement, end quote. The DOJ reported a culture of retaliation against incarcerated people, echoing allegations voiced in a lawsuit filed in September by incarcerated activist Kenneth Justice, who claimed he faced prolonged solitary confinement for speaking out against gambling rings run by staff at Limestone Correctional Facility. Within the first several months of the pandemic, incarcerated people across the country organized over 100 rebellions behind bars, many of which demanded mass releases to prevent the spread of the virus. A U.S. Department of Justice investigation described a decade-long pattern of civil rights abuses in the nation's second-largest women's prison, Lowell Correctional Institution in Florida. After reviewing 100,000 pages of documents and interviewing dozens of inmates, the DOJ instructed prison officials to institute protective remedial measures within 49 days or face legal action 
for violating the Eighth Amendment's ban on cruel and unusual punishment. The report demands reforms, but stops short of holding anyone criminally liable. Officers have raped, sodomized, beaten, and choked countless female prisoners who spoke of sex between staff and prisoners as a regular event. These were not isolated incidents. The Florida Department of Corrections continues to soft-pedal investigations, allowing guards with numerous sexual assault complaints to continue working. Deborah Bennett, an activist formerly incarcerated at Lowell, whose nonprofit assists inmates, explained, they could never make this a criminal case because they would have to arrest everybody. That prison is so corrupt that everyone is in on it. We are so used to Lowell getting away with everything. It's got to stop now. I hope this is a big hammer on top of that prison. Last year, Kanadika Zari Brown and her supporters won her a transfer to a women's prison in North Carolina. Zari Brown is a black trans woman who's been subject to transphobic violence in her previous facility. Unfortunately, she is still suffering harassment at the new facility. Her supporters have issued a request to call the North Carolina Department of Safety. The number is 919-838-4000. Ask for population management. Here's their summary of the demands. Quote, in 2019, after months of organizing, we got Kanataka, an incarcerated black trans woman in North Carolina, transferred from a men's facility to Anson CI, the state's newest women's facility. However, since her transfer to Anson CI, Kanataka has been experiencing daily transphobic comments and harassment over her gender identity. Anson CI is not equipped to support Kanataka at this time, and we are asking for her immediate transfer to North Carolina Correctional Institution for Women. The University of Mississippi announced that Assistant Professor Dr. Garrett Felber will be terminated by year's end. Formerly celebrated and on track for tenure, Dr. Felber studies the American carceral state and runs a prison program called Study and Struggle. Noelle Wilson, the Ole Miss History Department chair, rejected a $42,000 grant for Felber's program, claiming the project is political rather than historical, potentially harming the department's ability to procure funding. Dr. Felber explained, I am so deeply dismayed by the willingness of faculty and administrators at all levels of the university who acquiesce to the will of these powerful racist donors. The people that harms the most are the people who benefit from these projects, people who are already excluded from the university through structural racism. Over 50 writers and scholars, including Kiyonaga Yamada Taylor, Cornell West and Walter Johnson, and a growing petition of academic co-signers around the country collectively pledged to refuse all invitations to speak at, conduct professional service for, or otherwise be associated with the University of Mississippi until this egregious assault on academic freedom is reversed. Professor Felber tweeted, it's not some mythic politics versus history binary. This anti-racist program threatens racist donor money and racism is the brand, it's in the name. This week, we return to part two of our episodes on compassionate release. Compassionate release is the principle that sentences should be adjusted given, quote, particularly extraordinary or compelling circumstances which could not reasonably have been foreseen by the court at the time of sentencing, unquote. We now continue to hear from Allison Guernsey, who tells us about the barriers involved in this form of sentence reduction, such as excessively long sentences due to mandatory minimums. 
While it is usually considered from the perspective of individual prisoners suffering, for example, from a terminal illness, compassionate release has become an urgent collective demand in the face of the COVID-19 pandemic, as it spreads within crowded, poorly ventilated prisons across the U.S. So where we are after the First Step Act of 2018 is that an individual who believes that they have an extraordinary compelling reason to have a reduction in sentence is authorized to ask the warden at their facility to grant them a reduction in sentence. The warden has 30 days to respond. After that 30 day mark, an individual can petition the sentencing court, the district court where they were sentenced. They may or may not get counsel. And then the district court has to consider the motion that they filed. And when they consider that motion, they need to find an extraordinary and compelling reason. They need to find that the release is consistent with applicable policy statements. And then they have to consider 3553A. So one of the interesting things that we see litigated in the compassionate release motions in the federal district courts right now is one prong of this three-prong test right, that the district court has to find. Right? So extraordinary and compelling reasons, reduction is consistent with all applicable policy statements, and the factors under 3553A support release. The applicable policy statement requirement is something that's been litigated quite heavily because the applicable policy statements really refer to the United States Sentencing Commission policy statement that was promulgated back in 2006, well before the First Step Act of 2018, and well before individuals had the authority to move for compassionate release on their own. And there's language in the policy statements that tie it directly only to motions that the director of the Bureau of Prisons has filed on behalf of individuals, as opposed to those motions that the individuals themselves have filed. And now what that means practically is that if there are no applicable policy statements, then the district court need only find an extraordinary and compelling reason, and that release is consistent with 3553A. And this broadens greatly the reasons and the bases that someone could get a compassionate release grant. So I know that you had asked a little bit about the Zulo case or the Brooker case. And that case I think is a perfect example of what kind of litigation we see happening at the district court and ultimately the circuit court level right now. So I can use that as an example to sort of talk through the criteria for compassionate release if that's helpful. So in Zulo, it's a Second Circuit case, uh, there was a conviction for a drug offense and a gun offense. The drug offense in the case carried a 10-year mandatory minimum. That is, the court, absent very limited exceptions, was prohibited from giving a sentence under 10 years. And the gun offense carried a five-year mandatory minimum. Now, at the time, the Second Circuit had said, it's okay to run that 10-year mandatory minimum concurrent with that five-year mandatory minimum. In other words, we can run them together so that the most you could serve right, would be 10 years, or that a 10 years of potential sentence. It turns out, however, that the judge ended up being wrong about that. But during sentencing, the judge says, okay, 
I think that a sentence a little bit above the 10-year mandatory minimum is appropriate here. 10 years is 120 months. I'm going to impose 126 months for both offenses. So I'm, I'm imposing 126 months on the drug offense. I'm imposing five years on the gun offense, and I'm going to run them at the same time. I'm going to run them concurrently. Because the court was wrong to do that, however, the case gets remanded for resentencing, and the court is forced to impose 10 years plus five years, resulting in a 15-year sentence. The court did not want to impose a 15-year sentence. The court thought that a 15-year sentence was greater than necessary to serve the purposes of punishment, which is in fact the mandate of the sentencing statute 3553A, and frankly, justice. Right? The court believed that a 15-year sentence was too much, but unfortunately, because it was a mandatory minimum, its hands were tied. So Mr. Zullo, upon the enactment of the First Step Act of, 20, of 2018, decides that uh, he's going to go ahead and try to take advantage of the ability now to petition the court for a motion to reduce the sentence. So he petitions the district court to reduce his sentence. And what happens is that the government starts arguing that excessively long sentences are not extraordinary and compelling reasons. And that the district courts have to make those three findings I talked about above. They have to find an extraordinary and compelling reason. They have to find that release is consistent with the policy statements. In other words, that it's one of those factors above that was listed, right? Pretty medically based factors are what we, I think, traditionally conceive of as, as compassionate release. And that 3553A justifies release. But what Zulo's defense lawyer argued is that no, under the United States Sentencing Commission policy statements, it is referring only to those motions that the director of the Bureau of Prisons has filed. And so when the statute says you have to consider all applicable policy statements, there are in fact no applicable policy statements when an individual who is in custody or who's incarcerated is the one to file the motion. Turns out Mr. Zulo is right which is fabulous. And so essentially the Second Circuit says, if an individual who is in custody files their own motion for compassionate release, the district court of the sentencing court must find an extraordinary and compelling reason, but that reason is not defined by the Bureau of Prisons. It's not defined by the United States Sentencing Commission. And then it must find that the release is appropriate under 3553A. It owes no deference to the determinations made by the BOP or the US Sentencing Commission. This reasoning has been followed by a number of circuits. So right now we have the Seventh Circuit, the Sixth Circuit, the Fourth Circuit, and the Second Circuit. So all of these federal appellate courts have said that the only policy statement regarding compassionate release that the commission has issued by its terms is applicable only to motions initiated by the Bureau of Prisons. And for now, right, this is important for now, courts have broad discretion to define and determine what extraordinary and compelling reasons are under 3582C1A when the motion is filed by someone who's in custody. So what this means in practice is that district courts now have the ability to take a real second look at the sentences that they've imposed in the past and evaluate 
whether or not that person who's moving for a sentence reduction is presenting them with an extraordinary or a compelling reason to now impose a reduced sentence. It's important to know, however, that the statute explicitly states that rehabilitation alone cannot be a basis for a reduced sentence. But just because you can't consider rehabilitation alone does not mean that you can't consider rehabilitation in conjunction with other factors. So you see district courts across the districts, with some exceptions, but at least district courts in many districts, looking at sentences that they have imposed that they believed at the time were excessively long or they believe now were success excessively long, but at the time they didn't have the ability to remedy it because of maybe a mandatory minimum. So they've looked at these sentences anew and said, if I were to sentence you today, I wouldn't impose a sentence of 15 years, like in Mr. Zulo's case, rather I would impose the original sentence that I imposed, 126 months. Not only that, I'm looking at all the rehabilitation that you've done in the past eight years that you've been in custody, and I think that that original 126 month sentence is now not appropriate. So I'm gonna sentence you to time serve and I will allow you to serve the rest of your time on home confinement. So it really is allowing district courts a much greater ability to revisit things that may have been inequitable in past sentences and to fashion more appropriate sentences going forward. It's important to remember too that a motion for a reduction in sentence doesn't necessarily have to lead to the release of an individual from custody. So for example, if you have an individual who's sentenced to 30 years in prison because it was a 30 year mandatory minimum, but maybe today they would have only been facing a 15 year mandatory minimum. The court may say, I'm going to impose a 15 year mandatory minimum. And that may mean that the person still has five, six, seven, eight more years to serve, but still they would be eligible for the reduction provided that the court found that the excessively long sentence was an extraordinary and compelling reason. I think that a lot of the circuits who haven't yet ruled on this issue are inclined to go the same way the second, the fourth, the sixth, and the seventh have. There's been some fascinating and I think very well done briefing in a current 11th circuit case that I believe was argued maybe about a month ago by Sean Hopwood from Georgetown. There was a case that was argued in the 10th circuit uh, by former Judge Gleason and his team making very similar arguments. If I were a betting woman, I would suspect that uh, more and more circuits will join uh, these four circuits in holding that the policy statements that really restrict the bases for finding an extraordinary and compelling reason do not restrict in cases where individuals are filing their own motions. Since the pandemic hit, I think the one of the largest areas of litigation um, under the statute have really been related to individuals who have medical vulnerabilities that make it more likely they will become very sick or die if they were to catch COVID in a carceral setting. It's, sh it's shocking to me, first of all, um, how many people who are in our prisons suffer from medical conditions that make them vulnerable. Um, and, and not just 
sort of any medical condition, but medical conditions that the CDC has recognized make someone vulnerable, right? So obesity, for example, makes an individual vulnerable. And so during the pandemic, what we've seen is uh, individuals who are in custody file motions after 30 days or, or in districts where the federal public defenders are allowed to represent them, file motions with counsel, arguing that their extraordinary and compelling reason is a medical condition, maybe leukemia coupled with obesity and perhaps a heart condition. And those conditions coupled with the pandemic are extraordinary and compelling reasons for release. And then they argue that under 3553A, release is appropriate, citing the rehabilitation that they've done in prison, the need to honestly decarcerate to make prison safer for people during a pandemic, and articulating all sorts of other reasons why they shouldn't be required to sit out a pandemic and potentially die in a Bureau of Prisons facility. I think that one of the most troubling and frankly tragic parts of the compassionate release process has been the government's inconsistent positions as to whether or not people are suffering from extraordinary and compelling reasons that would warrant release. So in some districts, if individuals have um, conditions that the CDC has indicated will make you more likely to die from COVID or get severely ill. Uh, prosecutors have said, yes, that is an extraordinary and compelling reason, but they've relied on 3553A factors and an argument that an individual is dangerous in order to deny relief. But what is particularly troubling, and I think, frankly, unconscionable, is in the districts where prosecutors are refusing to even recognize that individuals who suffer from conditions that are listed as high risk by the CDC uh, suffer from extraordinary and compelling reasons. And rather, they argue that the BOP has things under control and that these individuals who suffer from pretty severe conditions are just fine. And the way that this has actually played out in practice is quite tragic. I can think of in the past five days, two, I'm sorry, three individuals who the government argued lacked an extraordinary and compelling reason, and then that person subsequently died in the Bureau of Prisons custody. So although prosecutors have been inconsistent across the country with this argument, I think as long as there is any prosecutor arguing that someone who suffers from conditions listed by the CDC is just fine in the custody of the Bureau of Prisons, when we see how the Bureau of Prisons has simply not handled the pandemic. Um, we're operating in a system that's frankly unjust. Thanks to Allison Guernsey for speaking with us. You can hear our previous episode on compassionate release on our website. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. Please keep sharing the number for our coronavirus hotline. We'll continue to air messages from prisoners who call in from the inside and family members calling in for support for their loved ones. 
You can call in on behalf of a loved one, or they can call in to record their message about the impact of the coronavirus on their facility at 765-343-6236. You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. For more information on the stories we air on KiteLine, check out kitelineradio.noblogs.org. If you or someone you care about has been affected by the prison system, you can call us to be interviewed or to record a message to be played on the air at 765-343-6236. We also want your feedback and to share your story. Feel free to write us at kiteline at wfhb.org. If you want to support our work, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio Show. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.